I think if you're in the space of B2C, for example, or if your B2B product is quite low priced, I don't think account-based marketing is the right strategy for you. Mm. However, absolutely, if you're after enterprise level B2B clients, ABM is key, account-based marketing. Just because, um, again, coming back to the B2B buyer and decision maker and again, the millennials, we're now accustomed to a certain level of personalization with our marketing. We're actually expecting brands to be really savvy and really clever with the way they market to us. And we expect them to be quite, not just personalized, but hyper-personalized. And when they do that, that is when we're impressed and nothing quite delivers that level of hyper-personalization as account-based marketing, which is why that's a key strategy. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. We are live on LinkedIn and we can get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Joanna Inch, who is the founder, best-selling author of Go to Market, a regular educator at the Sydney Microsoft Reactor, and a constant learner of ABM, account-based marketing, and B2B marketing strategies with a particular interest in consumer psychology. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paris. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. I'd like to start with some of your thinking around B2B marketing, where it's been and how it's changing. Can you tell us a little more about your thoughts there? Absolutely. I'm going to mainly talk to the world of SaaS and technology because that's been my main experience. But in general, the world of B2B, I think, was changed significantly by you know the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns. And the, the fact that we were forced into remote work situations, what that did was it accelerated the digital transformation, you know, at super speeds. So um, the first thing that I've seen as a dramatic change is that the consumer, the B2B consumer is now really savvy and they're very much used to doing their own research. In fact, research has recently come in from, you know, the likes of LinkedIn state of play reports, as well as some of the marketing automation giants like HubSpot and Salesforce. They've done quite a bit of research into it. And what's come to light is that the buyer is typically 60% of the way through the buyer journey before they get in touch with a salesperson. So um, what a lot of companies are having to do if they want to you know, attract more buyers is make sure that those, that 60% that they're doing on their own, you have to get in front of them for that 60%. You can't expect, you know, the salespeople to be picking up, you know, a lot of those sales targets that they currently are. I think um, it's very important that what we do is we create like a self-serve option. We Mm -hmm. make sure that as they do their research from attract to engage to qualify stages of the buyer journey that we're positioned right there and then. So um, that's the biggest change I've seen. 
COVID-19 aside, I think the other massive change I've seen in, in maybe in the last decade or less is really just the decision makers that are now in the world of B2B. And there's never just one decision maker, especially if you're after enterprise B2B. I think what you'll find is that there's at least on average six to eight decision makers within an organization. And one thing that comes to light is that 75% of the decision makers in the workforce at this present moment are actually millennials. I'm a millennial, so I can't say anything bad about them. But, um, you know, I, I know we kind of grew up with a bad rep for a while. But what that means is that, um, you know, the decision makers that are now in charge, they're very much accustomed to the internet and technology. Well, they're quite savvy when it comes to doing their own research and making decisions. So that's another thing to be mindful of. So um, mm -hmm. typical marketing campaigns that used to work, they just don't work anymore. So I think that's what B2B businesses need to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Those are the main two changes I've seen. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. So I have a few follow-up <laughs> questions in uh, relating to different parts of your answer. The first has to do with the fact that so many people are coming into probably sales demos now with a lot of prior research and perhaps already have been through a trial or maybe already using a freemium version of a product. What do you think are the implications for product-led growth now, considering that there's a stronger preference to try before you even speak with a salesperson? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to give a few demo options to the audience as a result. I think on-demand demos and a few different versions of them. Uh, I mean, I have, I have a client that does it really well. They actually customize your demo, your on-demand demo based on a set of questions that they ask you. So you go mm -hmm. through to their website. You say, okay, I want a demo. They're in the world of cybersecurity. So there's a lot of different demos they can get. They actually get mm. to select and choose what they want to see so that it doesn't waste their time. And then they get delivered an on-demand, very quick and short demo. I don't think it needs to be too long at that stage of their journey. I think by the time they speak to a salesperson, they probably just have really distinct and custom questions that they, they haven't been able to figure out, but they, mm. they're kind of quite maybe... 80% sure that they do want to use the company. They just have to check off, you know, contracts, integrations, things like that. So I think providing that for them is quite good. I also see the value of doing, you know, personal demos face-to-face, -face, but I think they just need to be thought through better. I think I'll share an experience I recently had. I, I wanted to buy this software. I really liked it. I was ready to buy it. And instead of going straight for the demo where they can teach me you know, how do I integrate it with my existing marketing automation platform? And then how do I get started? I had to sit through two meetings of people taking me through features that I was already aware of, even though I already told them, I, I understand this, you know, I've mm -hmm. done my own research. I'm really just wanting answers to these questions here. I still had to go through that. And it was just, it was quite a negative experience because I felt like they didn't really understand my needs. I felt like time got wasted in the process. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think again, B2B and, you know, SaaS founders and business owners and marketers really need to have tools at their disposal that kind of allow them to see where the customer's at in their research and then match mm -hmm. the demo and the product features to that. Mm -hmm. And did you end up buying that software after that? Not yet. Not yet. You're still thinking. 
I'm still thinking, um, <laughs> I probably will in the end because they are one of the best in the market, but I have to say it wasn't the best experience. Where, which category of SaaS is that in? I'm curious. Social media tools. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, I think that uh, some of the issues are that a lot of SaaS, especially enterprise SaaS, their sales funnels are set up in such a way that you have an initial prospecting call, probably with a with an SDR or BDR. That person is trying to qualify the lead in order to pass it to then uh, an account executive. If that exactly really breaks when you're considering that you've you've already educated yourself, maybe you have already trialed the product if there's a free trial version and you have specific questions, you're probably ready to go straight to the account executive. You can skip over the demo and really have something a little bit higher level, but they didn't know where you were in the journey. So it's also a, a fault, I suppose, that uh, they, they didn't have the ability to see previous touch points of yours. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. So initially I had to speak to somebody to get qualified. Then I had to speak to somebody who wasn't able to do the demo, but put me in touch with eventually someone that could mm -hmm. do the demo. So it was three meetings all up, which could have just been one. Having said that, in my research on social media tools in general, I noticed a lot of their competitors as well. One thing they didn't offer on their website is prices for very specific features. You know, you have like your basic prices, but then when you go to enterprise level and you want quite distinct prices, it's always, you know, get in touch with us. And I think there's a few websites where I saw that and I just went, don't have time, can't be bothered. I'm out. This one in particular was a bit more transparent with their pricing, which is why I ended up getting in touch with them and going through those three meetings. So I think, again, being transparent and giving not all of the information, but quite a bit of the information just to keep them, you know, keep them wanting just a little bit more, I think is key as well. I don't mm -hmm. think SaaS providers should hide the way they price. LinkedIn actually discovered that B2B marketers or B2B companies are now happy to spend over half a million dollars a year on an annual software license just through self-serve. So without even mm -hmm. speaking to a person in that company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing, actually, that they're, they're ready to make that investment. But I think it's yeah. it also may have something to do with the SaaS category, the more mature categories where people are familiar, most likely they're switching from another player in the space. So they're familiar with the features and they know what they need. And I think that they really don't need to speak with sales and they're ready to make a big investment for switching. Whereas if it's a new SaaS category and you have more innovation, let's say, then there I see more of a role for sales because sales does need to describe the real benefits of that product. And there you could be a new entrant into the category trying trying something for the first time. And so I think that that's that is one difference. Yeah, and, I think I'll, I definitely wouldn't discount the role of sales. I think it's very important to build a relationship. I just think they need to be mindful of where that buyer is in their journey and adapt the conversation to that. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about account-based marketing. And I believe that you've said something so bold as that this should be the only marketing choice for B2B, ABM. Um, what, what do you mean by that? I should clarify that. I think it really should be the only marketing choice if you're a B2B company that's targeting mid to enterprise level clients. If I think if you're in the space of B2C, for example, or if your B2B product is quite low priced, I don't think account-based marketing is the right strategy for you. However, 
Absolutely. If you're after enterprise level B2B clients, ABM is key, account-based marketing. Just because, um, again, coming back to the B2B buyer and decision maker and again, the millennials, we're now accustomed to a certain level of personalization with our marketing. We're actually expecting brands to be really savvy and really clever with the way they market to us. And we expect them to be quite, not just personalized, but hyper-personalized. And when they do that, that is when we're impressed. That is when trust levels go up. Trust is a big factor in buying, of course. And nothing quite delivers that level of hyper-personalization as account-based marketing, which is why that's a key strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, can you help our audience understand the the details about account-based marketing? Because I think there are some misconceptions here. How would you define account-based marketing? Yeah. In very simple terms, uh, account-based marketing is exactly what it, it says. It's marketing based on specific accounts that you know and want to target. So it kind of flips the traditional lead generation funnel upside down, where, you know, traditionally marketers would focus quite a bit chunk uh, of their time, resources, as well as budgets on lead generation. That could have been true, you know, ads such as Google, LinkedIn, Facebook, could have been true email marketing. Once they capture those leads, they then kind of focus on nurturing them until, you know, until they become a customer. So the typical kind of funnel that you've seen in, you know, in inbound marketing, as an example, in traditional lead gen. With account-based marketing, we actually turn it upside down. So you spend quite a big chunk of your time analyzing which accounts you want to be your customers. So you say, okay, well, historically, looking at our current customer base, we've actually had quite a lot of success with these industries and these verticals and maybe even these cohorts of accounts that share these similar attributes. So who matches that in the region that we want to target, be it Australia, be it the US, be it Europe? You then use tools that help you identify who those accounts are and then, again, identify who the key stakeholders are. Now, with account-based marketing targeting enterprise levels, it's never just one key stakeholder. It's always a bunch. So knowing that hierarchy and that map of who the decision makers are, but not just the decision maker, also the influencer, the champion, and some of the other people that kind of influence that decision as well is mm -hmm. key. And then as you kind of come down the now flip funnel, a lot of the time, resources, and budget is spent on creating specific personalized content for these accounts. And it absolutely has to be segmented by, you know, shared pain points, maybe by the industry, maybe by, you know, the job title and what their day-to-day -day looks like. So you spend quite a bit of time trying to nurture and convert these specific accounts. But the benefits are, you know, sales is not coming back to marketing saying these leads are terrible. Like, where did you find them? Because they actually helped um, marketing decide on who those accounts were going to be in the first place. So it's really just, it, it also helps to align sales and marketing teams. So they come together and they work on these same accounts together as well and identify mm -hmm. what do we need to do to really, you know, get them to notice us, get them to trust us, and eventually get them to buy from us. Mm -hmm. That's the long answer of what is account-based marketing. <laughs> that, that's great. That's extremely helpful. And one of the very important steps that you mentioned early on is to map 
people in the organization who are either on a decision committee or can influence or be a champion internally. How do you do that? And what, what sort of tools could you use to do that type of mapping? Yeah. The easiest one that most people would be aware of would be LinkedIn Sales Navigator. That alone kind of gives you, you know, the map of who everybody is, who everybody reports to, and who the decision makers are. You can then take it to the next level with tools like, say, Zoom Info or Apollo or Bombora. What they do is they extract the decision makers, you know, details of these decision makers, info that's quite relevant, such as, you know, what companies were they in previously? What does their journey look like? How long have they been at this company? Where do they sit in the decision tree? But I think the most important one is intent data as well. So these tools actually mm -hmm. measure intent data, which is have these people been searching for our products, features, and services online, you know, say in the past three to six months? And if so, they're ideal to target. Mm -hmm. With this, yeah, I mean, intent data now is, is very powerful. We also use LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's, it's, it's very helpful. Now, once you've got that list, are you personalizing content for the company or do you want to get one level deeper and try to personalize it for the specific roles of those people in that company? Yeah, it depends on who I'm working with. There's three different levels of personalization with ABM. There's one to many, one to few, and one to one. Mm -hmm. So one to one typically works best if the company has existing clients and they're trying to get more business out of that organization by tapping into different departments, for example. So a lot of the marketing efforts, the creation that happens is based on that one company and the decision makers within it and, and all of the departments. If I wanted to target more accounts, I'd probably do one to few and I would segment by say different job titles. So, you know, for example, the C-suite. So the C-suite identified as the decision makers. Now, the type of content that they want to see from a company is very different from the type of content the other roles would want to see from a company. But say people that also have a hiring role are also decision makers as well as influencers. We definitely want to create something for them as well. So it would be segmented in that way with their, those mm -hmm. attributes. One to many is really for people that are just running an ABM pilot or testing the waters and seeing, you know, if, is it going to work for us? Um, but also seeing, getting the data, the initial data to kind of help them craft and further segment their ABM campaign. So with one to many, I typically run a vertical campaign, which is focused on the industries. So for example, mm -hmm. you know, we have all of these accounts that have X number of employees that are making X number of annual revenue that are based in this region. However, we can actually cater to different industries. However, the content that we create needs to be industry specific. So we're going to create content for, say, the SaaS industry, the financial service industry, the healthcare industry. And so that's a good way to start ABM. And then as you see which accounts engage, I then recommend segmenting further. So mm -hmm. seeing, okay. How can we further personalize this to get more attention and more trust? Mm -hmm. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. 
A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. What, and what is the role of outbound marketing within an, an ABM strategy? Yeah, it, it actually plays quite a good role. Um, so you mean like the SDRs? Yeah, or sim- simply outreach through yeah. um, email sequences, LinkedIn, uh, phone outreach, general outbound sales. It, it absolutely plays a part in ABM. The way I, there's a few different areas where it works really well. So as an example, say some of these tools that we're using, they're pretty good at creating lists of the key stakeholders. However, all we know about them is that they work at this company, they have this job title and they've worked here at, you know, X number of years or months. There's a lot of questions that we want answered that we don't know about them. For example, how long is the contract on the existing software license? What are their priorities over the next six months? What are they struggling with? I find that getting answers to those questions by outbound before they then enter the ABM program is quite good. So that's, I kind of see it playing a role at the beginning as well as at the end. We've also used outbound or we've used SDRs to say we've run roundtables or webinars. Um, Now, sometimes straight after a webinar or an event, the people are kind of ready to speak to sales straight away. So we do encourage anyone that has attended be followed up. Anyone that's kind of not interested, you know, they continue going through the ABM program, but it definitely helps speed up, you know, the people that are kind of ready to talk to us straight away. Mm -hmm. And then of course, at the end of the ABM program, once a person has gone through the pilot and reached a specific, say, lead score because they've engaged with plenty of assets, we find that, yeah, there's definitely a need there to follow them up and learn more about them and see if they're interested in going to that next step, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. book the demo or speak to somebody. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned assets and content. Let's talk about that a little bit more. It seems like an enormous amount of content when you consider the degree of personalization that you're implying. What type of content is involved and how can you harness the resources in a company to get all that content created for you for an ABM campaign? It may sound overwhelming at first, but it's really not. We, we end up using so much existing content that just simply needs to get repurposed. So one example I love to use because everyone's always so busy to create content, but I say, look, If you just give us one webinar, so you give us, say, one hour of your time or a few hours of your time preparing for the webinar, you then give us one hour of your time to host the webinar. What that then does is it creates one primary asset that we can use in ABM, but it also creates um, multiple derivative assets that can give us enough content for the next three to four months of nurture. So typically we start with a webinar. Those tend to work well. However, a lot of the existing content that companies typically have, it's really just a matter of slightly rewording some of the words, you know, redesigning maybe the cover to make it focus towards a specific industry. So there's a lot of clever ways of repurposing existing content that then can be quite effective for personalization in ABM. So definitely don't feel overwhelmed by the amount of content that needs to be created. There's a few tricks with that. 
Mm-hmm. What about case studies? Do you utilize case studies also for ABM? Um, surprisingly, I don't find them as effective as I used to. I And I did actually read up on this recently that, you know, case studies are just, they're no longer, I mean, they're not an interesting bit of content to read. I think that when you read a case study is when I think you've already gone through that 60% of the buyer journey, you've already done your research and you're really just sussing out if this company is to be trusted. So I think mm. case studies play a role maybe towards the lower side of the, or towards the end of the buyer journey. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really get much engagement from them early on at the attract and engage phase. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. In order to build trust. After all, most case studies are very heavily biased. I'd say they, they are written by the providers themselves. Exactly. Um, I think the yeah. buyers are very aware of that. They're quite savvy. So I think unless there's a story to tell, you know, with a similar pain point and, you know, we don't necessarily call it a case study, then I've seen them have a lot more engagement. There is one exception there, though, which is a video testimonial from a happy client because that that seems very authentic and it's hard or impossible to, to fake that. That's very true. And I think video in general uh, works much better. I mean, I think that's why we need webinars because they create multiple video snippets that we can reuse in things mm-hmm. like socials or employee advocacy, uh, in emails. And video is great because, you know, people definitely remember more of what they see than what they read. Yeah. And what are some metrics in ABM that would be considered successful? If you have for, uh, let's say you have a list of 100 accounts initially, what what would be considered a success in terms of getting uh, X percent of those into discovery calls or demo calls and then and then eventually closing them, which is more sales, I guess. But what, what would be a marketing, good marketing KPIs for ABM? Absolutely. I think the first uh, metric I start off with is total available market. So seeing, okay, mm-hmm. so based on who you want to target, what is the total available market? Because I know a lot of people, a lot of companies, KPIs, they're kind of made up and pulled out of nowhere. Like, oh, we need to make, you know, a hundred million ARR by next year. It's like, okay, well, let's analyze this for a second. Who do you want to target? Okay. This is the total available market. Now out of these people, the next kind of layer down is how many can we hope to engage as part of this ABM program? And then you know, you kind of have the engaged demand and then you have the qualified demand. So even though they're engaging, they might not be ready to buy just yet. So there's a few different metrics to qualify them. And this is where outbound comes in. This is where progressive profiling comes in. We learn more about, you know, their current state of play and what the situation at their organization is. I have they committed to a five-year license with a competitor and therefore it's out of their hands. You know, do they need another five decision makers to get on board, in which case that could prolong the life cycle stage by X amount of months. And then really, once they get to qualify, we then just get to really, we're just looking at what's in the pipeline and how do we move them across? So Mm -hmm. those would be the top metrics to look at. Mm -hmm. I suppose also the nature of ABM is that you're going after big fish. It's kind of like whale hunting. So. It's not necessarily the, the quantity, but the quality that you're after. And That's if you right. can even get one really great account to go all the way through to close, that will most likely, in terms of the LTV of that new client, probably that pays for all of your efforts uh, a few times over. 
It does. Yeah, mm. absolutely. It really just takes one and patience. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially with long sales cycles, I think that's an, another aspect too. If you have a long sales cycle, then marketing's KPIs tend to be a little bit more related to just sales pipeline engagement. But it could be if it's six to 12 or more months until that deal closes, you're never going to see very tangible ROI on that investment until um, maybe a year later. So then you need to latch on to some of the other things like sales pipeline, qualified sales pipeline that you've built. Whereas if it's a shorter sales cycle that might be less than three months, then I think then you can better align marketing's KPIs with the sales KPIs and you can more fairly judge marketing on what has actually closed if it's a shorter sales cycle. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's very much, I think if it's a longer sales cycle, but you kind of have six months to prove that it is, ABM is in fact working. Mm. It's a different set of metrics that we look at and it, they're all around levels of engagement. So for example, how many people from the same account are engaging? That's a good mm. metric to look at. Also, which yeah. people in the account are engaging, but also what content are they engaging with? Because that could usually lead to the next bits of conversation we want to have with them. Mm. So the third six months, they don't typically deliver, you know, the whale, but they deliver us enough data to know how to get the whale in the following month. Yeah, that makes sense. And can you also help us think about the balance between paid and organic when it comes to ABM? I assume that a good ABM strategy would also require a massive LinkedIn ads budget in addition to a lot of other organic efforts around, let's say, maybe SEO. But how, how can companies also think about the budget planning aspect of this, paid versus organic? Yeah. Surprisingly, I always say I don't think you need a huge budget on paid. And it, it really depends on the company. I mean, if they're a startup and they're kind of the challenger brand, they're new to the market, that's when I think they need a, a higher budget to really get noticed and get that brand awareness across. However, if they're a more established brand and they have, say, over 50 employees, I actually think engaging an employee advocacy program works way better than paid advertising. So what you do is you get people in the company to really get on board with sharing the organic socials. Employee advocacy programs are great because they make it really easy for employees to do that. So um you pretty much deliver the main content assets that you want them to share. You can also give them variations of how you want them to promote that. And then you share it across the organization and it's absolutely trackable as well. And what you end up seeing is that because LinkedIn algorithms naturally prefer people over companies, when people share that content, you get a much higher reach, awareness, impressions, and it's basically well, it's not entirely free because, you know, employee advocacy tools cost a little bit, but next to that big paid budget, yeah, it's way more affordable and way more effective. I think the key is just to um, have those people in your organization that are willing to do that. And, you know, there's obviously incentives and rewards that, that can be there for them to do that. And also just making sure that they're well-connected as well. So typically the salespeople in an organization are well-connected to potential customers because, you know, they're doing quite a bit of prospecting by LinkedIn already. So by doing employee advocacy, it gets the message across from the company, but it also starts to position them as thought leaders. So it actually has a few mm -hmm. 
different benefits. So I actually mm. end up recommending that over, you know, let's spend $10,000 a month on LinkedIn. I think typical budgets that we've run with ABM campaigns have been one to 3000 a month, really just as a start to promote specific campaigns like webinars and events. Oh, interesting. I would have assumed that would be much higher. Um, what is the average size list, account list uh, that you work with in ABM? Um, again, it depends on the level of ABM that we want. So if it's one-to-one ABM, we mm-hmm. don't recommend more than 10 accounts. If it's one-to-few, mm-hmm. we say less than 50. And if it's one-to-many, mm-hmm. you know, typically that can be in the 100. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Now, you mentioned employee advocacy tools. What, what sort of tools are there out there that can help companies do this well? Yeah. There's a few tools out there. One that I'm using specifically is called Sprout Social. And really, it's quite clever because, again, it allows you to take that main asset, create different variations of it, send it across to all of the employees in the organization that you want. They then share it and it just comes with really good tracking and reporting. So you get to see, you know, because of everyone sharing it, how many impressions have we received? How many landing page clicks have we received? But it also kind of creates a little friendly competition amongst the the people sharing it to see, well, who has shared the most and who has had the the biggest impact as well. Now, what if the employees of a company aren't connected with the people in the account list? Is that then misguided or wasted efforts or is it still worthwhile doing? No, I think in that case, it's really just about tackling that at the start. So before we launch the employee advocacy programs, we typically, when we pull out the list of stakeholders from the accounts we want to target, they also come with LinkedIn profiles. So we typically send those to the employees and we say, you know, reach out and connect to these guys. Just a friendly Mm -hmm. message. You know, you're not selling them anything. The goal really is just to get that connection. So be as friendly as possible, you know, customize your message as much as possible. And typically within a couple of weeks, they end up being quite well connected. And then it's, yeah, it's much more effective doing employee advocacy after that. Got it. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense to get, get the connections first. Well, Joanna, I, what what else about ABM? I, I think I've exhausted my my questions, but there's been some great stuff here. Yeah. Um, any advice for a company that hasn't done this before, just getting started? Where is the best place to start? Um, I mean, definitely try an ABM pilot just to see how it mm-hmm. works for you. Definitely only do it if you're after, you know, again, mid to enterprise level. Also, uh, I think talking to sales teams, talking to customer success teams, I think aligning with everybody in your organization is key. So, um, you know, the best ABM results I've seen is when the cadence of these teams communicating with each other is pretty much on a real-time slash weekly basis. So um, that's Mm -hmm. very important. And yeah, I think content plays a huge role. Typically with ABM and B2B, I think when I see companies create content, it can be quite dull. I think they stick to very, um, you know, B2B, nothing exciting, you know, say white papers where they're kind of trying to explain more technical details. What we've started to do recently is attach a creative idea and a creative concept to some of these campaigns. Typically, mm-hmm. it's done in B2C, but what we're finding is, you know, it's the same kind of buyer, B2C versus B2B, and creative concepts can really help content be remembered. So by combining that creative, 
you know, process with the strategy mm-hmm. with ABM, uh, together with the personalization, together with the cadence of, you know, all these teams talking to each other and being aligned. Those are the key elements or ingredients that make the perfect ABM recipe. Mm-hmm. That's great. Do you do ABM for your agency? We do. We do. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We practice what we preach. <laughs> yeah. And how has that worked? It's worked really well. Yeah, this this mm-hmm. has actually been a, a very good year for us personally. We're working with some really exciting new brands at the moment. Our challenge at the moment is finding more good people to join the agencies. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess the, the challenges of scaling. Yeah, these are the problems that we all want to have. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's right. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, uh, Joanna, this has been fantastic. We've pretty much covered everything um, I wanted to chat to you about today. We covered the changing B2B consumer, um, you know, the fact that millennials are now the main decision makers, how savvy our buyers have become in the world of B2B, touched on ABM and content. Yeah, you've asked us all the most amazing questions, so thank you. Sure. Well, thanks very much, Joanna. It's been a pleasure talking about ABM and B2B buying. Thanks very much for the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.